Hi, everyone. Um, thank you very much for being here today. And uh, thank you to Will and the Center for Ethics for the invitation. Uh, it's really a pleasure to uh, share this work, that I'm, which is a new project that I'm working on with you. And um, I'm excited to hear your questions and your thoughts during the Q&A. Um, so as the kind of title and the abstract indicates, what I would like to focus on today is the uses and kind of abuses of balkanization in theories that attempt to explain race, racial relations, and racism in the United States. And in particular, I will focus on the work of Toni Morrison, uh, which serves as a kind of inspiration for Derrick Bell's account of the thesis of the permanence of racism. Um, to begin exploring this use of balkanization in theories of racism in the United States, I want to begin by drawing your attention to the long-standing portrayal of the Balkans as symbolic of brutality and savagery. This depiction has permeated various discourses, including legal, political, cultural, economic, social, and journalistic ones. Common phrases such as the balkanization of Pakistan, balkanization of India, of Africa, of America, of Russia, of US, and Europe highlight the prevalence of this perception. The metaphor of balkanization has also found its way into discussions about technology. Now we have a new term called cyber balkanization, which refers to the fragmentation of the internet due to different countries blocking content for various political reasons. So references to balkanization can be found in the works of you know, lazy journalists, bad historians, <laughs> orientalist thinkers. Um, however, they can also be found in notable scholars of race and critical race theorists, such as Toni Morrison and Derrick Bell. And for those of you who might not know, Derrick Bell is a leading legal scholar, he's a prolific writer, and a civil rights activist. The references to balkanization in the work of Bell and Morrison are especially important because they are some of the most leading and the most astute theorists of race. Therefore, it is worthwhile to delve into their utilization of the concept of balkanization, as these ideological references to the region play a crucial role in the way in which we understand racism today. So by exposing the assumptions about the Balkans in Morrison and Bell's work, we reveal the racist tropes embedded in our leading theories of racism today. To begin, I want to turn first to Morrison. In 1989, the American journalist Bonnie Angelo opens her interview with Toni Morrison with a statement that Morrison leaves us in a state of hopelessness in claiming that the abyss between the races cannot be bridged. To this, Morrison responds with the following statement. I quote, I feel personally sorrowful about black-white relations a lot of the time because black people have always been used as a buffer in this country between powers to prevent class war. If there were no black people here in this country, it would have been balkanized. The immigrants would have torn each other's throats out as they have done everywhere else. But in becoming an American from Europe, what, what one has in common with that other immigrant is contempt for me. It's nothing else but color. Wherever they are from, they would stand together. They could all say, I am not that. So in that sense, becoming an American is based on an attitude, an exclusion of me. It wasn't negative to them, it was unifying." End of quote. She continues arguing that when immigrants get off the boat, uh, they immediately lean and learn into anti-black racial slurs. This, she argues, is their entrance. Quote, every immigrant knew he would not come as the very bottom. He had to come above at least one group, and that was us. End of quote. 
This famous quote by Morrison is referenced and cited by many scholars, philosophers, legal theorists, including George Yancey and critical legal theorist Bell, to whom I turn shortly. It is cited often, not only because of the utter despair that Morrison expresses about the racial relations in the US, which is indeed a very powerful description, but also because it provides an explanation for the persistence of racism. What Morrison argues is that racism is not an accident or a hiccup in an otherwise democratic society, nor a phenomenon of the past that persists in the present but will eventually wither away. Such arguments would imply that the structure of US society is antithetical to racism, which ought to be or will be overcome. Rather, Morrison explains racism in the US by pointing to the function or the role it plays for the very existence of US society. She argues that without anti-Black racism, without Black people being the buffer between powers to prevent class warfare, the US would collapse into instability. It would become balkanized. This is not the only place in which Morrison uses the language of balkanization. Indeed, this appears in her work and always in relation of explaining racial relations in the US. In a conversation with Bill Moyers in 1990, she states, quote, it could have happened that all these people who came here figured it all out and eventually slavery was of no use economically, perhaps. But to make an American, you had to have all these people from these different classes, from these different countries, different languages, feel close to one another. So what does an Italian peasant have to say to a German burger? And what does an Irish peasant have to say to a Latvian? You know, really, they tended to balkanize. But what they could all do is not be black, end of quote. In learning racial slurs the second they enter the United States, the immigrant, she writes, is establishing oneness, solidarity, and union with the country. This is their marker, that's the one. To someone who comes from the Balkans, what is immediately striking <laughs> is not merely the reference to the Balkans and balkanization, but the explicit assumption that the worst possible state of affairs is that of balkanization. Indeed, the evil of racism is itself understood to be a product of the attempt to avoid being swept away in a state of balkanization. This is explicitly articulated in Morrison's scapegoat theory, which aims to explain racial relations in the US. The theory presents a narrative where one group is designated as a sacrificial scapegoat, necessary to prevent the eruption of a state resembling that of war of all against all, or more precisely, war where all groups are pitted against one another. Within this analysis and explanation of racism, there are numerous metaphysical and ontological assertions at play, including the inevitability of in-group and out-group formations, marked by inherent animosity and immediate hatred and violence, a sort of state of nature characterized by perpetual war, and thus the naturalization of war itself. There is also the claim that, albeit through racism, the U.S. has successfully appeased class warfare and even more overcome the worst-case scenario balkanization. This is contrasted to other regions, particularly the Balkans, which have not been able to surmount divisions and overcome the state of war. The U.S. is portrayed as a nation that, again, through violence and racism, has transcended the state of natural warfare, while the Balkans, on the other hand, unable to achieve this, remain ensnared in the state of nature, a war of all groups against all groups, serving as a kind of grim reminder of nature and its constant threat. Before we unpack these assumptions and explore their origins, let us take a moment to elucidate how this theory operates. A compelling illustration comes from the work of Bell. In his famous book, 
faces at the bottom of the well, as well as in his many essays and law reviews. He takes inspiration from Morrison, and in particular from her claim that, quote, if there were no black people in this country, it would have been balkanized, to articulate the thesis of the permanence of racism in the US. Like Morrison, Bell contends that racism is not an aberration or an anomaly in the United States. Rather, it exists in a symbiotic relationship with democracy. American society, he argues, relies on and is sustained by racial discrimination. His thesis on the enduring nature of racism posits that white people, even though situated at the lower rungs of social hierarchy, have bonded against black people. This racist bond prevents civil war by uniting white people across a diverse socioeconomic spectrum. Echoing and directly citing Morrison, Bell argues that without black people as the ever-present scapegoat, the country would be balkanized, again, with immigrants at each other's throats. Thus, for Bell, racism is a necessary element for maintaining cohesiveness among the vast majority of the United States. In his analysis, Bell provides statistical evidence highlighting the disproportionate percentage of African Americans who continue to bear the weight of poverty, even in the face of advancement among middle-class African Americans. Whether or not we agree with Morrison and Bell that racism is permanent, they both convincingly demonstrate its persistent nature through these enduring disparities. Importantly, for the purposes of my talk today, the scapegoat theory posits the value of racism to be that of achieving stability. In this framework, stability is pitted against balkanization or contrasted with the potential of balkanization. Through racism, the United States establishes a form of stability that prevents the fragmentation of diverse groups. African-Americans emerge, to use Morrison's language, as a common denominator of race and racial relations around which groups and disparate entities unite. Morrison's contention that the presence of black people as the ever-present scapegoat prevents balkanization is, according to Bell, quote, an accurate assessment of how the presence of black people enables a bonding by whites that occurs across vast socioeconomic divides, end of quote. Quoting Morrison's famous passage I read at the beginning of the talk, Bell underscores the relevance of her observation in light of Eastern Europeans experiencing ethnic conflict upon the collapse of communism. He writes, quote, Tony Morrison's observation gains in validity as Eastern Europeans, freed of the authoritarian domination of communist control, engage in fierce and bloody ethnic conflicts. Those conflicts and their violent counterparts in other parts of the world give emphasis to the reason why Americans can boast that this nation is a melting pot of people from many origins. Notice here that for Bell, communism as the embodiment of an authoritarian state was the stabilizing force. After the fall of communism, we get fierce and bloody ethnic conflict. While in the United States, by contrast, the narrative goes, it is the scapegoat that fulfills this role. In other words, racism replaces the authoritarian state, thus allowing for capitalism to gain a certain degree of harmony. Immigrants from Europe, Bell argues, despite being white, saw, quote, the need to bolster their self-esteem by denigrating black people. And as for non-European immigrants from Asia and Spanish-speaking nations, he raises the following question. Will they reject quasi-white status and join forces with black people against the economic and social rejection faced by both groups? Or will they unite against black people? The evidence, Bell argues, currently points equally in both directions. And the possibility that non-European immigrants join forces with black people, he writes, 
quote, faces monumental barriers, unquote. Nonetheless, what is certain for Bell is that, quote, American whites achieve a measure of social stability through their unspoken pact to keep black people at the bottom. Even more, in his other work entitled Racism is Here to Stay, Bell revisits the same Morrison passage, emphasizing now, quote, the significance of the Toni Morrison anecdote is its universality, end of quote. He elaborates, arguing that it is difficult to think of another characteristic of societal functioning, quote, that has retained its viability and its value to social stability from the beginning of the American experience down to the present day. This identical passage and identical analysis is found in his other writings. So the undeniable importance of Morrison's passage and analysis to Bell's thesis on the permanence of racism, I think, is evident. In fact, Bell even connects it to Ursula Le Guin's renowned story entitled The Ones Who Walk Away from Amelas. Um, and the question for us is, what brings Morrison and Le Guin together for Bell? Le Guin's 1973 novel, The Ones Who Walk Away from the Amelas, is a short fiction story that presents moral and ethical dilemmas of a seemingly utopian society. Amelas is an idyllic community where people are content, they're happy, they have no needs, and are, all their desires are fulfilled. The story begins on the first day of summer in Amelas, an extraordinary joyful society, which is described as uh, an atmosphere as if there was a festival as if the festival was a daily occurrence. Omelas lacks traditional societal structures like kings, soldiers, priests, or slaves. Upon describing this idyllic community, the narrator reveals that the city has one dark secret. To maintain its perpetual happiness, a single child is sacrificed. In the basement of one of the buildings in the story, a child sits in horrific misery. Upon learning the truth, most citizens reluctantly accept this sacrifice for the greater good, while others choose to walk away from Amelas after witnessing the child's suffering, hence the title of the story. The story by Le Guin ends in the following way, quote, the place they go towards is a place even less imaginable to most of us in the city of happiness. I cannot describe it at all. It is possible it does not exist. But they seem to know where they are going, the ones who walk away from Amelas, end of quote. Bell presents us with a story, or importantly, all but the ending when some walk away. He emphasizes the other moment in which everyone in the Amelas kind of accepts the fact that there is a child that's being sacrificed for the sake of everyone else's happiness. Upon presenting this narrative, Bell contends, quote, this is a marvelous metaphor for countries, for our country's racism, end of quote. So in the same way that Bell characterizes Morrison's articulation of the avoidance of balkanization as having universal validity, he suggests that Le Guin's Amela stories relies on what he calls a primary truth. This primary truth is encapsulated, according to Bell, in a question, quote, in the melding together of millions of individuals into a nation, must some within it be sacrificed, killed, or kept in misery so that the rest who share the guilt of this monstrous wrong can bring out their guilt, those qualities of forbearance and tolerance that are essential to group survival and growth." End quote. That is, the universal dilemma and the primary truth have to do with whether or not societal cohesion and progress 
necessitates a sacrifice or oppression of some for the greater good of the collective. But why would Le Guin's fictional story tell us anything about this primary truth or about racism? Isn't it just another myth? Indeed, both in relation to Morrison and Le Guin, Bell returns to myth to describe racism. But metaphors, analogies, and stories, as powerful as they may be, are no substitute for social theory. And in fact, when taken too seriously, or when they become the basis of theory, they posit a real danger. In using myths and stories and theories of racism, one risks reifying the myths and turning them into social truths. In short, these myths, as kind of state of nature tales, end up naturalizing and ontologizing social relations. On the one hand, the recourse to myth makes sense as an endeavor to capture what seems like something archaic that persists in the present. But on the other hand, this recourse to myth leads to new myth-making. To show this, let us look at the work that balkanization is doing for their argument, for it is here that I think we can see an instance of this new myth-making. As I stated earlier, stability and balkanization in their account appear as opposite. Black people play a stabilizing role without which we get balkanization. This argument has metaphysical and logical assumption, including the ontologization of war or the inevitability of war that I mentioned earlier. Additionally, it also has a form of tribalism, asserting that human nature predisposes, predisposes individuals to form groups where individuals recognize humanity solely within those sharing distinct markers of the we group or the tribe. And here, individuals that lack distinguishing features, whether linguistic, racial, religious, or cultural, are not regarded as part of the broader human race. Moreover, the claim that Black people are a buffer to prevent class war is presented by Morrison and not challenged by Bell. This implies that the presence of a scapegoat eliminates class war, a kind of, suggesting a kind of class harmony. This would imply that Black people solve the riddle of capitalism. Their subjugation brings forth class harmony. This idea, however, contradicts the broader argument, particularly in Bell's case, which acknowledges the persistence of capitalism and the prevalence of poverty in working class conditions, even if black people are disproportionately affected. It also sidelines the fact that the stability required by the US is for the sake of progress or the development of capitalism through class warfare. Furthermore, we ought to ask, what is the nature of bonding with social groups? Presumably not all social groups bond in the same way, and the bonding of specific social groups does not necessarily imply social cohesion or the binding of society as a whole. One may also push back against the presupposition of the existence of social groups as social agents rather than some artifact of arbitrary census classifications. That white people form a group called white people may seem pathological. And posits race in an unmediated way by class or other factors reducing it or rendering it into something irreducible. In an odd way here, in this theory, the great unifier seems to be the violent Eastern European or those from the Balkans. Here in the work of Morrison and Bell, we find an explanation of the permanence of racism by reference to the permanence of war of races in the Balkans. The Balkans become synonymous with or inseparable from the portrayal of the Balkans in the media or the culture industry. That is, the Balkanization which is juxtaposed to stability is a highly fictitious and a racist account. 
And what do I mean by fictitious and racist? This account portrays the Balkans as backwards, even in comparison to racist societies, they're worse off. And what makes them worse off is precisely their lack of stability or the condition of perpetual warfare. Unlike societies that stabilize through racism or other violent hierarchies, the Balkans are marked by a pervasive equality in warfare. All groups equally fight one another. The absence of a designated scapegoat becomes a defining feature of their perceived backwardness. They have not, so to speak, managed to get their own scapegoat. The Balkans are thus internalized in their instability. The use of this conception of the Balkans is archetypal. It reinforces the prevailing narrative about the region as inherently violent and backwards. And it is noteworthy that in our current academic climate, where there is a growing embrace of decolonial theory and a robust critique of any narrative labeling the non-Western world as backward, primitive, or violent, where we strongly oppose depictions of the marginalized as barbaric and animalistic, that the essential portrayal of the Balkans remains unchallenged or even goes unnoticed. Today, the term Balkanization signifies ethnic, racial, national, cultural fragmentation characterized by perpetual conflict, instability, war, disputes, and violence. It is argued that this phenomenon devastates not only Balkan countries, but disrupt regional and global economic activities and political and cultural development. Thus, the Balkans are not merely viewed as self-destructive, but they're perceived as a kind of threat, the potential of Balkanizing the rest of the world. For centuries, the Balkans have persistently been depicted in this way, instability, brutality, savagery. As political scientist Aidan Hehir has shown, Balkans are framed as a zone of depravity from which the civilized world must recoil. This portrayal not only reflects laziness in its analysis, but more critically carries undertones of colonialism, essentialism, and racism. Take as an example the storming of capital which occurred in the US in January 6, 2021. When this occurred, many commentators resorted to cliches about Balkan countries such as Kosovo and Bosnia, perpetuating stereotypes that are inaccurate, racist, and fundamentally colonial. Observers expressed shock at the scene, questioning how such events could happen here. They described the events as events reserved for, quote, the banana republics, the third world, and the Balkans. Even a famous historian of the Balkans, <laughs> Tim Judah, tweeted, the US has gone full Balkans. <laughs> End of quote. So what does full Balkan mean here? <laughs> As here is argued, exactly what this means at the time when Judah made the tweet required no further explanation. For quote, the analogy struck a chord with many for whom the Balkans is simply a byword for chaos. End of quote. But for us, the question remains, what is Balkanization and how does it relate to the Balkans? Why have the Balkans become understood as this dreadful and hellish place, the kind of underworld of civilized society that threatens to reappear whenever a sacrifice is not made? Now, it is true that the Balkans have endured many wars. But what does the history of these wars tell us? Does it suggest a unique characteristic of the Balkans that makes conflict inherent to them? Do the people living in the region possess an aptitude for conflict, an appetite for violence, and a thirst for war? Does the historical record imply that unlike other parts of the world that have similarly experienced war, the Balkans in particular are inherently violent? They are, in a sense, to blame for their self-inflicted violence. 
This is indeed the dominant interpretation, an interpretation that equalizes, flattens out all the wars that occurred in the Balkans, that ontologizes and naturalizes violence. The region thus becomes a kind of cursed region because the people of the Balkans have a natural propensity to rage violence and war. But when we avoid flattening out all the atrocities in the region, we see that the Balkans is not an arena of perpetual, equal, unending warfare. It is not a region devoid of scapegoats where all are equally subjugated to violence. Instead, each horrific incident had its own victims, its own persecutors, its own losers, and its own victors. Each instance is characterized by its own set of perpetrators of violence and its own scapegoats. When this history is brought forth, war ceases to be an inherent characteristic of the region and its people and becomes a historical phenomenon that has affected the Balkans as much as the rest of the world. Even more, the, Bar the Balkans are revealed not to be characterized by war, but to have had wars, plural, as part of their history. The region has experienced socio-historically specific forms of conquest, occupation, ethnic cleansing, and genocide, as much as it has been a place of self-determination movements, liberation struggles, insurrections, the founding of new nations and federations. Not to mention a place in which people live, create countries, and develop their own cultures and nations. But again, this is not the dominant narrative. The Balkans are rather interpreted as a place plagued by ancient and ethnic hatred. The history of the region, thus, is neither understood as affected by wars in a world that has never been without conflict, as we comprehend the histories of, say, France, England, or Germany, nor analyzed in relation to persecution, genocide, colonial and neo-colonial measures, as is done for other comparable regions in the world, once referred to as a third world. To understand why the Balkans are treated in this way, let me briefly say a few words about the history of Balkanization. Balkan studies have long challenged the racist perception of the Balkans in relation to Europe and the rest of the world. Famously, Maria Totorova, in her 1997 book called Imagining the Balkans, critiques Balkanization, the stereotypical image of the Balkans in kind of the Western imagination. This body of literature has critiqued the stigmatization of the region and the pejorative use of the term Balkan, as well as has shown the history of the development of the region and these two concepts. The term Balkans itself is an Ottoman Turkish word for mountain range. It means wooded mountains. The term entered discourse in the 19th century, first used by German uh, geographer Aga Zoina in 1808 to describe countries south of the old mountain in Bulgaria. He sought to name the southeastern part of the European landmass according to the mountain system. And the peculiarity of the Balkan Peninsula is the lack of a mountainous demarcation dividing it from the rest of Europe in its northern part. So the Balkans refer to a peninsula that is home to several ethnic groups, but where ethnic divisions have not necessarily historically been reflected in national borders. From the beginning, it had geographical and also political meaning, initially indicating territories under the control or at least the influence of the Ottoman Empire. Now, despite Zoina's use, it's, it took decades for the term Balkans to become widespread. More importantly, in the 19th century, when we look at Venetian, German, French, Russian, British writings, we find no homogenous view of the Balkans, and this remains the case until the 20th century. Rather, what we find here are different references depending on time, 
religion, language, region, and period, a kind of diversity of opinion, but not yet a unified Western conception of the Balkans, and not yet a stereotype about the Balkans. In fact, it is also difficult to find remarks that are entirely disparaging about the region at this stage. But the development of the negative connotation of the Balkans can be traced to the decline of the Ottoman Empire. The competition between Russia and Austria-Hungary, the weakened Ottoman Empire, national revolutions, gave rise to instability in the region. And then you had the emergence of terms such as the Eastern question, the powder keg of Europe, and the tinderbox, which entered international politics. With the May coup that happened in Belgrade, 1903, the Balkan Wars of 1912 and 1913, World War I, and importantly, the assassination of Franz Ferdinand, which occurred in Sarajevo in 1914, this, these events solidify the perception of the Balkans as imbued with conflict. It is this period that gave rise to the term Balkanization, denoting political and territorial fragmentation within the context of ethnic heterogeneity and territorial and border disputes. Now the Balkans signified disintegration and a return to a more ba backward primitive way of living. During the era now of the dominant imperial and colonial time in, in Europe, the major European powers viewed southeastern region in a new light. The West developed its own perception of the region as uncivilized and backward. And in this light, the history of the Balkans appears in a sense generic. They too were treated as utter rubbish in Western eyes. The civilization mission turned to the Balkans, which, as Odorova shows, was understood as unreliable place full of, quote, misogyny, propensity for intrigue, insincerity, opportunism, laziness, superstitiousness, lethargy, sluggishness, inefficiency, and even things such as cruelty, boorishness, became typical of the Balkans, which were now juxtaposed to a conception of Europe, which is a narrative we know as orderly, clean, self-controlled, but most importantly, one that had a sense of law, justice, and efficient administration. Slowly, therefore, the Balkans became kind of fixed in their instability and became seen as the other, the counterpart to Europe. After World War II, scholars continued to use the term Balkans and Balkanization to denote national fragmentation of former geographical and political units. Even the African decolonization was referred to as the Balkanization of Africa. Even though socialism in the Balkans after World War II placed the region in new West-East divide, it was soon faced with another pit. During the late Cold War discourses, ideas about Central Europe were developed by scholars in Hungary and Czechoslovakia. Central Europe was developed by scholars to kind of denote a part of the socialist East, which was really formed by the West. The constitution of this Central Europe, further other than provided an account of the Balkans as less civilized now in comparison not to Western Europe, but also Central Europe. This account of the Balkans became even more perpetuated with the disintegration of the socialist regimes and their breakdown in the 1990s. The rhetoric was even used to legitimize Croatia's independence in 1991, which was understood as a kind of Croatia's emancipation from the Balkan burden. Journalists consistently refer to the Balkan wars and Balkanization during this time through descriptions such as these people have been fighting each other for hundreds of years <laughs> with a kind of impatience. 
These troubling analyses that we find in the, in the late 1900s are not unique. In fact, they were popular since the late 1800s. American Baptist William Miller, for example, in his 1898 Travels and Politics in the Near East, wrote, quote, the Balkan Peninsula is, broadly speaking, the land of contradictions. Everything is the exact opposite of what it might reasonably be expected to be, end of quote. While German philosopher Hermann Kieserling wrote in his 1928 Europe, quote, the spirit of the Balkans as such is a spirit of eternal strife. Inhabited as they are by primitive races, they present the primal picture of the primal struggle between the one and all, end of quote. Or take, for example, Paul Maurer, who was a European correspondent for the Chicago Daily News. He, as the New York Times stated, quote, plunged into the confusion of the Balkan Wars that proved a curtain raiser for World War I. He writes, quote, Yugoslavia is a region of hopelessly mixed races, a collection of small states with more or less back backward populations, economically and financially weak, envious, with conspiratorial behaviors, scared, constant victims of manipulation by great powers, as well as violent outbursts of their passions, end of quote. As you can see, he really plunged into the confusion of the Balkans. <laughs> Slowly but increasingly, the Balkans were left out of discussions of Central Europe and later even of Eastern Europe. The Balkans became the less civilized part even of the Southeast part of Europe. To Europe and the rest of the world, the Balkans became officially non-Europe, that which presented the oriental, the selfish, the uncooperative, the unpredictable. All this, mind you, despite historical evidence of the contrary. Many countries were multi-ethnic and religiously diverse with various stages of tolerance and cooperation. The region, of course, had its own ancient cultures, urbanization, and philosophy. And Balkan people lived in a kind of multicultural milieu long before it became fashionable. One that is hard even for me to believe, since I've been told the narrative of Balkanization all my life. <laughs> the Balkanist discourse penetrated deeply into Europe and influenced academia, media, and the arts, portraying the Balkans as entrenched in rural life, characterized by backwardness and uneducated urban poor, with religious and racial minorities like the Roma population and Muslims. This perception of the Balkans, the Balkan inferiority became internalized, giving rise to pervasive, pervasive tropes of one's own Balkanness. Today, the region encompasses the modern countries of Albania, Bosnia, Bulgaria, Greece, Macedonia, Montenegro, Serbia, Kosovo, the European part of Turkey, and despite their protestation, Croatia and Slovenia. <laughs> the latter two insist that they don't belong. Um, and it's Indeed, very few countries willingly identify as being part of the Balkans. Generally, the argument is wherever borders end, the Balkans begin. <laughs> Always pointing south. This. Yeah. Does the Balkanization discourse has become so ingrained that it operates even within the Balkans themselves? It is common to even hear references of the true Balkans, which points to Bosnia and Kosovo, the two Muslim-majority countries, as representative of the authentic Balkan experience. The main thread of the critical Balkanization discourse is that it provides an essentialist, racist, prejudicial view of the Balkans as reducible to ethnic hatred and conflict, and thus as backwards and fragmented. 
Scholars from the region have long shown that violence is not inherent to the Balkans, but rather a characteristic of most inaugurations of nation states. They've illuminated the complex interplay of race, religion, and colonialism in the construction and subjugation of the Balkans, highlighting how the region has been relegated to a repository for highly racialized and essentialized narratives. Peter Rejepi, for example, has analyzed the oppression of Muslim populations during Yugoslavia and the racism towards these populations, which gained momentum during the Iranian Revolution and the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 1979. He has also shown how, in the early 80s, one million Bulgarian Muslims were targeted for forced assimilation in a process known as the rebirth process, which was considered a civilization and enlightenment project targeting those converted to Islam during the Ottoman Empire. And this process was understood as a kind of return to Bulgarian roots. Western media, as Rejepi has shown, programs such as Radio for Europe, spoke of these measures as harsh but necessary. And the French government spoke of them as painful, but a realistic rebirth of Christian Europe, a kind of final solution to the Balkan question. The era of nation building in the region brought forth new racial stratifications for Muslim populations with new modern approaches to sanitation and education. European anthropologists, ethnographers, and eugenicists, he shows the likes of Carlton Kuhn from Harvard, arrived to the Balkans to study the populations and, as usual, the skulls, <laughs> the skulls of Albanian Highlanders. They consider the Balkans, interestingly, to be of Aryan stock, but corrupted by Ottoman immorality and the still in need of civilization. These processes saw Islam as incompatible with civilization and the racial return to the post-Ottoman Europe. Rajabi refers to these processes as early 20th century racial regimes. Post-Ottoman rule and post-Habsburg empire, and later during and after the Cold War as well, Muslims in the Balkans were subjugated to various whiteness projects attempting to dissociate them from Arabs and African Americans, as well as also from the larger Muslim population outside of Europe. This was the case in part because Islam was considered a threat to the region and whatever image Europe had of itself. Thus, after the Cold War, these practices continued, for example, by closing mosques in Bosnia or targeting Muslim scholars in Vienna. There were even attempts um, to constantly make an argument about the whiteness of Muslims in, in Bosnia. For example, as Rajeti notes, the Grand Mufti of Bosnia reassured the EU and NATO that Bosnian Muslims are indigenous to Europe, they follow modern structures, and are neither Asian, African, Turks, or Arabs. <laughs> For Rejepi, European colonial and racial regimes created what he calls a kind of aspirational whiteness. He had a constant attempt to reassure or, or convince the Muslim populations that they are white and not scary Muslims. This, however, did not really change the perception of either Muslims or Roma populations in Europe who continue to be called apes, and in the words of the Bulgarian Prime Minister Borisov, bad human material. Bulgaria, in fact, organized the displacement of Roma people, passed laws to criminalize radical Islam, closed mosques, and supported border vigilante groups during the um, refugee crisis in 2015. Some even suggested creating American-style reservations for the Roma populations where women would have access to free abortion. I mentioned Rajepi's work here because he has shown that races and colonial practices in Eastern Europe and the Balkans are not exceptional, and that racism in, the, in, in these regions and the U.S. are connected. 
Take his example of, uh, at the time, Senator Biden addressing Albanians in the Bronx with the claim that the war in Kosovo in the late 90s was a civilization choice, join Western civilization or remain in its backwaters. At the same time, as he was supporting the passing of laws in the U.S. that encouraged states to expand the prison industrial complex against African-Americans. The U.S. and European involvement in post-socialist spaces thus not only tried to integrate Eastern Europeans and Balkans against the racial and Muslim threat assumed to be coming from the East, but also legitimized U.S. modes of domestic violence. This scholarship in the Balkans, this has shown that Europe is Europe in and against the Balkans. Here, it is not just the creation of Central Europe that I mentioned earlier, but of Eastern Europe itself that has a role to play in the stigmatization of the Balkans. Eastern Europe serves to define the West, as Larry Wolf has shown, and actually serves as a kind of link, is his argument, between Europe and the Orient. But again, despite this scholarship, the term Balkans and Balkanization stubbornly cling to violence and political unrest. The other of Europe is, as Dushan Bielic argues, hopelessly diverse and fragmented, so much so that in the end they're all alike. Much like the perspective of Morrison and Bell that I began with, the Balkans continue to evoke images of perpetual and senseless warfare, thereby erasing the nuanced nature of violence in the region. Consider the more recent genocides in the Balkans, where a systematic attempt was made to cleanse the region of Muslims, Slovenian, Kosovar, Bosnians, and Romas. This occurred in the region earlier that I designated as the true Balkans, the space of persecuted Muslims positioned in the Muslim Southeast, closer to Turkey, distant from Slovenian Christianity. This internal racialization within the Balkans perpetuates the notion that being from the Balkans implies not truly being white, European, Christian, or speaking a Slavic language. And to this day, scholars and politicians refer to Kosovars as primitive and unable to work collectively without supervision, and unable to tame their lust for violence. They are considered children, as her here argues, who must be leashed, tamed, and dragged into modernity. The essentialist and racist stereotype of the Balkans has consistently as constantly fighting, renders all the historical details of the regions irrelevant. Thus, it is common to hear references to the region as incomprehensible and messy. No one really knows what goes on there. As the American historian and novelist Arthur Smith wrote in 1907 in, in an otherwise highly romanticized account of the Balkans, quote, to those who have not visited them, the Balkans are a shadow land of mystery. To those who know them, they become even more mysterious. <laughs> the Balkans are so complicated, we are told, too complex for the outsider to comprehend, and yet they're spoken of in perpetual innate violence. This account of the, of the Balkans renders violence not only innate, but also kind of senseless and unintelligible to the civilized eye. And perhaps this explains why Balkan scholarship struggles to gain recognition beyond the region. Perceived as a place of perpetual warfare and trapped in a state of nature, the Balkans are rendered ahistorical or seemingly unimportant to the broader history of the world. As a place stuck in perpetual conflict, they have not really caught up or not nearly enough for us to care. Consequently, regardless of what happens in the region, each event is quickly folded into the ready-made narrative of instability, allowing the racial metaphor of the Balkanization to persist the Balkans come to embody eternal conflict. 
Now, it is easy to critique racist historians and racist journalists, but what about the use of balkanization to theorize race and racism in the US? Considering the account of balkanization I laid out, what implication does this have for the scapegoat theory which hinges on the necessity of avoiding balkanization? What does it mean that a theory that attempts to explain racism relies on a trope of the Balkans as a savage east of the west? The theory of racism that Morrison and Bell put forth, I argued a moment earlier, relies on bad metaphysics, which renders war an inevitable necessity of all life, and thus projects nature without mediation onto the historical world and renders the conditions established by social systems of organized domination as eternal conditions of human existence and progress. In this account, the U.S. overcomes the state of nature by way of racism, whereas the Balkans cannot. These eternal conditions appear as competition in the struggle for existence. In a world that sees the West as civilized, those stuck in this state, in this state those who have not managed to sublimate this fight for existence in the sphere of successful competition marked by relations of uh, capitalist relation by way of a scapegoat, are seen as savages. In this account, war is not derived in relation to organized domination. Rather, in the West and the United States, the war takes on a rationality, and so does racism. They're understood to be tools by which the country stabilizes itself. In the East, by contrast, the war is irrational. Here, war is not what punctuates moments of peace or even guarantees them, but becomes the whole of time. This is a form of war that does not even carry with it the possibility of peace or stability, which is guaranteed in the US by racism. Here, war, hatred, racism are irrational and internal. By pitting stability against Balkanization, theorists of race perpetuate the races and essentialist tropes of the Balkans, tropes that are perfectly manifested in the remarks made by British General Mike Jackson in 1999, who was the head of the cave war in Kosovo, as he complained that the war continued in Kosovo despite the deployment of troops, NATO troops in the region. He states, quote, Two wrongs don't make a right in Western culture, but they certainly do in the Balkans. To the victor, the spoils, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It's all quite Old Testament stuff, end of quote. Attributing Old Testament stuff to the Balkans as a disposition that is an anathema to the Western culture, the Balkans become, in a sense, irredeemable. This exact juxtaposition, one between stability and instability, reappears in Morrison and Bell. Though their purpose is far from glorifying the US or erasing their violence, quite the opposite is to make an argument about the permanence of racism, the effect is nonetheless the same. The authoritarian element that secures stability in the US is racism. This authoritarianism is what is needed to stabilize the Balkans. In the West, racism allows a sufficient degree of harmony essential for capitalist competition and progress. Notice here the Enlightenment era ideology of nation building a period during which the term Eastern Europe emerged to conveniently lump together Russia, Bohemia, and the Balkans. Theorists of the time, such as Francois Guizot, conceptualized the building of nation states as a natural process that progresses from group, group conflict to the eventual establishment of the rule of law and stability. What was so great about Europe for Guizot was its diversity, citing its group conflict as a progressive one. Similar to the West today, including the United States, is portrayed as embodying progressive group conflict, in contrast to the Balkans that only have group conflict without progress. 
Trapped in a perpetual warfare, then, the region is unable to channel this group conflict into antagonistic improvement and progress by way of scapegoat. To conclude, I want to suggest that it is quite curious that the theories of race and racial relations do not challenge this ideology. Instead, they ontologize war and use highly racialized and essentialist account of the Balkans. This faces real limitations. Not only does it perpetuate racist tropes about the Balkans, but it also cannot adequately address and explain race, for it assumes it. Race remains in the work of Morrison and Bell the thing that needs to be explained. The use of balkanization in these dominant theories of race indicates the need for an ideology critique as opposed to a turn to literary accounts and to myths. Now, literary accounts and myth hold a high degree of truth in their ability to capture the experience of subjugation and racism. They allow people to articulate the magnitude of living in a racist society and to capture the experience of being a scapegoat. Thus, Bell turns to Le Guin because he feels that her writing captures the profoundness of this feeling. However, there is a difference between the magnitude of this experience and a social theory that explains social forces and relations of racism. Ideology critique can capture the latter. Its goal is not merely to emphasize the magnitude of racism, but to explain it. One may here contrast Bell's account to that of Douglas's or Du Bois. The danger of resorting to myths, such as that of the Amelas and the Balkans, to explain racism is that it drags racist assumptions and risks eternalizing racism, and that is perhaps exactly what Morrison and Bell's theory does, provides a theory of the permanence of racism based on myth. This loses sight of the historical processes of racism, both within and beyond the borders of the US. Ideology critique can capture and analyze what the recourse to myth purports to, this kind of return to the repressed. This primal violence that keeps resurfacing and needs to be tamed and channeled correctly for society to persist. Ideology critique here can show and problematize the distinction between a primordial violence versus civilization, where the latter represents precisely our ability to overcome nature, as a result of which the distinction, as a result of which distinction, the Balkans are relegated to a state of nature. By submitting even our own myths to critical scrutiny, ideology critique can undertake a twofold task. On the one hand, it can critique these enlightenment accounts of civilization, and on the other, it can expose ideological features embedded in the myths and stories we tell ourselves about racism. This allows us to avoid myth-making, to avoid ontologizing and naturalizing socio-historical phenomena such as racism that our theories are attempting to explain. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.